Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Peter Stanley from the University of New South Wales, Canberra. If you can picture an area bounded in the west by a line just west of the Cocos Islands in the Indian Ocean, in the north by a line through the Torres Strait, in the east a line passing east of Niue in the southwest Pacific, and in the south by the Antarctic Circle, that area was the Australian Station. From 1821 to 1913, it was the responsibility of a British Royal Navy squadron to protect and ensure good order and security at sea, as well as imperial defence in the area. This podcast discusses the contribution of the Royal Navy to Australasian security during those 92 years until the new Royal Australian Navy took over responsibility for the Australian Station. In doing so, it will bring to light some of the personalities that helped to increase Australians' awareness of sea power and encourage the creation of Australia's Navy. To discuss this little appreciated aspect of Australian naval history, I'm joined by Dr Hone Cuff, who is a research officer at the Australian New Zealand School of Governance in the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University and was until recently of the Sea Power Centre Australia. On the line from Hamburg, Germany, we have Captain Lieutenant Tim Döbler, a divisional officer at the German Naval Academy at Flensburg. And here at UNSW Canberra, we have Dr Richard Dunley, the Naval History Lecturer at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy. Welcome to all three of you. First, to set the scene, while the Royal Navy had been central to British coastal exploration of Australia and its settlement, it was not until 1821 that a ship was detached to New South Wales from the East India Squadron. Tim Dobler, can you talk about those early days and the reasons why this presence grew? Yes, of course. So in the early days of the British colonies in Australia, the main cause for, of fear among the colonial officials was France. Right after Captain Phillips' arrival uh, in Botany Bay, two frigates led by the French seaman uh, La Perouse arrived in Botany Bay as well. La Perouse had been great had been a great admirer of Captain James Cook and his accomplishments, but he was uh, quite disappointed when he realized that Botany Bay did not provide the same conditions as the South Sea Islands and soon left. When he disappeared, the young colony continued to live in fear of a French invasion. And to keep the French out of Australia, uh, the British colonists established more colonies on strategically important points along the coast. In this way, uh, they were able to defend Australia against French colonization, despite uh, the small uh, presence of the Royal Navy. And after the Napoleonic Wars, the Royal Navy presence in Australian waters grew as the Admiralty started to regularly send warships from the East India Station to visit Australia. Uh, The ships were dispatched for hydrographic services, to chart and survey the surrounding waters of the young colonies. Quite often, officers of those hydrographic vessels would become highly involved with the colonies, either through marriage into local families or because they took up positions as harbour masters or lighthouse inspectors through which they helped to develop the British colonies in Australia. Um, In addition uh, to the hydrographic service, there were also security security reasons for growing the Royal Navy presence in 
as Australasian waters. One reason was uh, the Maori Wars, which today are referred as uh, the New Zealand Wars. Uh, these wars were a number of conflicts between indigenous people of New Zealand and British colonists from 1845 well into the 1860s. At the heart of the New Zealand wars was the Treaty of Waitangi from 1840, which was signed by a number of Maori chiefs and British colonists. In this treaty, the Maori chiefs acknowledged the queen as their sovereign, and in return, their land rights would be respected by the colonists. But in the years to follow, the tensions between the colonists and those chiefs who did not sign the treaty grew and ended with the outbreak of hostilities in 1845. So to assist the colonists, uh, Royal Navy Squadron was detached and provided men and guns. Officers and men of these ships alike uh, formed naval brigades which managed to defeat the Maori. Um, however, hostilities remained and the Royal Navy's involvement lasted until 1864, at least. After that, the Royal, Navy's, or the Royal Navy continued to provide transport and logistical support uh, to the colonists, but had no direct involvement in field operations. Another reason for the Royal Navy's presence was the French engagement in the South Pacific. Although the British prevented the establishment of a French colony on mainland Australia, Paris' interests in the islands of the South Sea remained unbroken. So in the late 1830s, French naval interests clashed with the interests of the Tahitian Queen, who was patronizing the British in her realm. But when French Catholic missionaries were evicted, a French squadron took over Tahiti, starting a war that lasted from 1844 until 1847. The result was that Tahiti became a French protectorate. Um, the British were patronized by the Tahitian queen during this time, uh, as they always had several ships in the region and they helped uh, the queen to remain independent during the conflict. But in, they never actively intervened in the war. Thanks, Tim, for that summary of the first four decades of the Royal Navy's encounters with the Australian colonies and the Southwest Pacific. Uh, in 1859, such was the level of activity and the demands on the Royal Navy that the Admiralty decided to establish a separate Australian squadron. Richard Dunley, can you explain the drivers for this and who the first commander was? Yeah, so <clears throat> there were a number of factors, uh, some of which Tim has already uh, begun to, to draw out. Um, but there are certain things that are happening in the, the 1850s that are really sort of pushing, pushing this forward. Um, the first of these is uh, what was commonly known as the Indian Mutiny or the, the first Indian Revolutionary War, which leads to the, the demise of the East India Company um, and a real increase in the focus on crown responsibilities, so British government responsibilities in the sort of the broad region um, of eastern waters. Um, and so there is, this isn't a directly affecting Australia, but it is something that is, is focusing British government attention on the region more generally. Um, there is then also the increasing presence in the South Pacific, uh, sort of more, more focused, um, of other European and sort of, um, I guess, great power type nations. 
Um, so Tim's already mentioned the the issues with Tahiti um, and the, the Southwest Pacific generally in relation to French presence. But there's also American presence increasingly growing in uh, sort of East Asian waters um, and a concern with things like American whalers um, and other broader American presences into the region. So you're, you're seeing a number of sort of high-level factors uh, that are beginning to, to make this region seem more, more important or there being greater uh, competition uh, within it. And then I guess layered over the top of that, you've also got a sense of, of an increase in Australia's importance. Um, partly this is coming from its sort of economic growth um, through things like uh, sort of the growth of ag agricultural production and things like that. Um, but then, of course, the 1850s sees a sudden gold boom. Um, and whilst this causes lots of problems in many respects for, for op naval operations based out of Australia, because lots of men desert to go to the gold fields, um, it does mean that Australia is, is viewed as, as being more important and its, um, uh, its concerns are given greater weight. Um, and so these factors are all coming together uh, and lead to Captain William Loring, who is the uh, senior officer in Australia, um, to recommend to the Admiralty that the establishment of a, a separate Australia station, which was responsible directly to the Admiralty. Um, and that's one of the other factors that plays into this, is that distance um, was a, a real issue at this time, and communications. Um, and so if communications are having to go through uh, the commander-in-chief of a different station and then on back to London, it makes the, the problem of distance even and, and communications even more difficult. Um, so Loring recommends this, and he was effectively appointed first uh, Commodore-in-Chief in March 1859 um, and hoisted his broad pennant on the 1st of July. Um, one of the, the immediate factors was, as, as Tim was pointing out, the unsettled situation in New Zealand. And immediately after his appointment, um, pretty much Loring leaves Sydney for New Zealand, where he spends most of his time um, as Commodore-in-Chief, uh, because of the, the outbreak of the first Taranaki War. Um, and naval forces were heavily involved in this, um, again, as, as was suggested, through not so much through their actual naval function as um, through the formation of naval brigade and the landing of naval artillery. Um, so Loring was involved in quite a lot of this, um, but he didn't really actually enjoy himself as part of the process. Uh, he didn't like being so far away. Um, he disliked the Australia station, despite being the, the first um, uh, Commodore-in-Chief. Um, and he had regular disagreements with both the army and the governor in New Zealand. Um, and so eventually he, he gets um, uh, sort of withdrawn um, and, and is succeeded by Frederick Beecham Seymour. Thanks, Richard. Uh, you mentioned the involvement of colonial forces in New Zealand. Uh, Hone Cuff, it was about this time that the first stirrings of, lo of having locally raised naval forces occurred. Can you explain what was happening? Sure. So the story of Australia's local navies really begins with the deterioration of British-Russian relations, which culminated in the outbreak of the Crimean War in 1853. Among the Australian colonies, this situation sparked real fears of possible attacks on shipping or the colonies themselves by Russian ships that were in the North Pacific. Um, as Richard noted, simultaneously, the discovery of gold in South Wales and the newly established colony of Victoria saw huge changes for Australia. 
there were vast amounts of gold stored in Australian ports for exportation to Britain, Europe and America. And the port of Melbourne in particular became a large and influential trade and shipping hub. This highly lucrative shipping was particularly vulnerable to attack and seizure. So against this backdrop, it became clear that the colonies needed to contribute to the naval defence of the continent and the shipping that sustained it. New South Wales and Victoria made some early provisions for maritime defence. During the Crimean War, the New South Wales colonial government ordered the 65-tonne sail gunboat HMCS Spitfire. Spitfire was launched in 1855, serving as a harbour defence vessel in Sydney until 1859, when the ship was given to Queensland. Of all the colonies, Victoria put the greatest effort into her naval defences. The Victorian colonial government ordered the construction of the armed sloop HMVS Victoria. The 580-tonne ship was delivered in 1856, and in the years to come, she conducted hydrological surveys, search and recovery operation, and transported two companies of the British 40th Regiment to New Zealand in support of the colonisers during the First Taranaki War. In 1864, the ship Victoria was declared unfit for defensive service. Uh, Victoria, whose ports the Imperial Squadron Seldrum visited, uh, sought to remedy its lack of local naval defence. In 1866, the colonial government sought to take advantage of the 1865 Imperial Colonial Naval Defence Act, which formally permitted the colonies to acquire and operate warships within their territorial waters and raise seamen to service these vessels. The Victorian colonial government applied for financial assistance and was subsequently granted £100,000 towards the cost of a monitor turret ship. This support was offered on the understanding that the ship would be placed at the disposal of the commanding officer of the Royal Navy's Australian station in the event of a war. In 1867, the Royal Navy donated the old wooden ship Nelson as a training ship and Victoria raised a small permanent force um, and naval reserve. The new monitor turret ship was HMVS Cerberus, completed in 1870 and delivered to Port Phillip in April 1871. Cerberus was a formidable sight, 3,300 tonnes, steam-powered and clad in iron plating, 6 to 10 inches thick. During Cerberus's more than 50 years of service with the Victorian Naval Forces, Commonwealth Naval Forces and finally Royal Australian Navy, the ship acted as a harbour defence vessel, a guard and ammunition store ship during the First World War and finally a submarine tender. Thanks, Hone. Uh, Tim Durbler, Richard mentioned the second commander of the Australian station uh, was uh, uh, Commodore Beecham Seymour. He came from one of the most famous naval families of the 19th century. Can you tell us some of him, his service, and his impact more broadly? Of course. So uh, Commodore Frederick Beecham Seymour took over the command of the Australia uh, station from Commodore Loring in March 1860. Uh, Seymour's flagship was the screw steam corvette Pelorus, which was just commissioned in July 1857. With her, he would see service and led a naval brigade in the New Zealand war. New Zealand wars that I described earlier. Uh, Seymour himself was born into one of Britain's best-known service families. He was related to four post captains and three flag officers, one of them being Admiral of the Red Sir F.B. Seymour. Some of his relatives had very distinguished service records and were highly decorated. Uh, 
Uh, Commodore Seymour himself served in the Pacific region for about six years on board uh, Pylorus from 1857 until 1863. He later held admiralty positions such as the private secretary to the First Lord of the Admiralty, the Right Honorable, Honorable Hugh Charles from 1868 until um, 1870. His experience on the Australia station and his knowledge of the region likely influenced his work and in turn the first Lord of the Admiralty. Um, it was in this position that Seymour was present for the presentation of the old uh, ship of the line Nelson and later the Monitor Cerberus to the colony of Victoria, as Honey has just mentioned. Very interestingly, Nelson was supposed to become a training ship uh, in the tradition of HMS Britannia and others back in Great Britain. In some respects, Commodore Seymour can be seen as one of the early supporters of, a, of the colonial navies in Australia and of local maritime defense. Um, he got his final appointment in 1883 as second sea lord, but prior to that he held command of the Channel Fleet and later became commander-in-chief in the Mediterranean. Uh, for his service during the Anglo-Egyptian War in 1882, he was named Baron Alcaster of Alcaster in the Warwick County, um, but his peerage got extinct when Seymour died in 1895 in his London home, unmarried and without children. Mm, thank you. Uh, deserves some more attention, I think. Uh, Richard Dunley, one of the themes or indeed tensions of this period was the pressure for the colonies to provide some financial support for the Royal Navy Squadron, while at the same time there was a growing investment in local naval forces. Can you discuss this issue? Yes, of course. Um, the issue of who pays and for what was probably the most contentious out of all of the issues um, related to sort of Australian, early Australian naval forces and forces in Australia. Um, I guess that, that never changes, right? Um, but the, the Admiralty in London constantly argued throughout the 19th century and into the 20th century that the best naval protection for Australia came from a strong Royal Navy largely based in Europe, um, which could deal with any major threats um, and then with a few sort of British ships on the Australia station for primarily policing work. Um, and that was very much their view, sort of looking at it from a global strategic perspective. Now, this didn't always cut it from a local political perspective. Um, and as Hone has already pointed out, um, there were strong drivers for um, sort of stronger forces uh, in, in theatre, as it were, uh, near Australia. Uh, and this led to the formation of some of the, the early colonial naval forces. Now, as, as Hone mentioned, one of the key drivers of this was fear of, of Russian attack on Australia. Now, the Admiralty looked at this uh, from the perspective of London and thought it looked utterly ridiculous, um, but that doesn't necessarily play out in the politics of Sydney and, and Melbourne. Um, now, one of the, the problems in terms of the colonial naval forces was that they were always really too small to ever be properly effective. Um, there were real challenges over sort of unified command. So New South Wales didn't get on with Victoria. Um, Queensland and South Australia didn't always sort of weren't felt to pull their weight. Um, all of these sorts of things were, were playing out. Um, and so there was there was a sense that, that 
you couldn't really develop an effective uh, naval force out of this. Um, and so the British were always quite keen on, on trying to maintain as much Royal Navy control and basically to have, have the Royal Navy manage it. Um, however, they were also very keen on, on getting some money uh, to pay for, for this. Um, and so there were these constant battles over this. Um, and it's, it's already been mentioned briefly that the, um, the, the 1865 Colonial Naval Defence Act gives the colonies the, the legal right to raise warships. Um, and this was, was partly a, um, a sort of a post-fact way of acknowledging something that was already going on. Um, but the Admiralty generally remains pretty unconvinced. And when, as Hone mentions, the government agreed to give quite a big subsidy to Victoria to pay for the, the construction of a, a monitor, um, the Admiralty are not particularly happy about it. And there's some ongoing discussion into the 1860s or later 1860s about getting um, the Australian colonies to pay and provide a subsidy for the Royal Navy um, to help support the Royal Navy squadron. Um, but this kind of peters out um, and very little ends up being uh, actually achieved on this, this front. Mm. Um, so there's quite a lot going on, um, but actually... Uh, at this stage, very little ends up directly happening. Mm, thank you. But lots happens directly in the Navy's involvement in the islands north of Australia. Um, and service on the Australian station was not without its dangers. In 1875, its commander, Commodore James Goodenough, died on active service. Hone Cuff, what happened? That's right. Those serving on the Australian station faced a range of dangers, including raids and wreckages at sea. In addition to these more typical risks of the seafarer, personnel serving on the Australia station had to contend with hostilities from the local populations throughout the region who rejected British colonial exploits and intervention. And this included things like attacks on vessels and personnel. The eighth commander of the Australia station, Commodore James Goodenough, faced such danger. In June 1875, Goodenough departed Sydney uh, on board his ship HMS, HMS Pearl, tasked with delivering to Fiji the newly appointed governor of Fiji, Sir Arthur Fadden. After Fiji, Pearl continued to visit New Hebrides and uh, the Santa Cruz Islands. On 12 August, after anchoring Pearl off Carlisle Bay, Santa Cruz, Goodenough and members of his crew landed ashore. Here, trinkets were used in an attempt to bargain with the local population. What, a fir what first appeared to be a cordial interaction quickly deteriorated when Goodenough and his crew were fired on. Goodenough was hit with an arrow to his left side, and he later recounted the episode in his diary, writing, I shouted to the boats, pulled the arrow out and threw it away and leapt down the beach, hearing a flight of arrows pass. Upon return to Pearl, he ordered a number of huts be set alight in retaliation, and he later died of uh, tetanus on board the ship. So that's 1875, uh, dramatic events. <clears throat> Excuse me. We're moving through the century. Tim Dobler, you've made something of a study of the links between both Royal Navy men serving in Australia and Australians serving in the Royal Navy. What can you tell us of them in the lead-up to the creation of a Commonwealth Navy? Yeah, so even without modern ways of transport, the people within the British Empire developed a high level of mobility. 
you would have found migrants heading for the colonies, colonial officials on their way to new postings and merchants and so on and so forth. Interestingly, they were not just movements away from Britain to the colonies, but from the colonies back to Britain as well. Uh, the reason for that was simple. Families that had established themselves in the colonies would often stay in contact with their family in Britain because they continue to see Britain as their home. A lot of families would travel back and forth and sometimes send uh, their offsprings back to Britain either, either for education or marriage. Uh, Navy personnel was just one group in this buzzing empire. Due to, due to their service in colonial waters, uh, the, the personnel of the Royal Navy stations became highly involved with the local communities. Uh, I, think of, I think one of the best known examples uh, is the father of the Royal Australian Navy, uh, Vice Admiral William Rue Creswell. Um, after retiring from the Royal Navy, he migrated to Australia, and after several years of farming, he served in the various colonial navies in Australia. Uh, the other way around, sons of colonials would often go to Britain to join the Royal Navy as officer cadets. And even though many of them did not return for good, some, of, some others returned to serve on the Australia station at one stage of their careers. Um, one exceptional example um, for this was Vice Admiral John Gregory Crace. Uh, Crace was born in Gangalan in 1887 and he joined the Royal Navy in 1901. But during his career, he returned three times to serve in Australian waters. The first time uh, from 1808 until 1910, uh, the second time on board HMS Australia from 1912 to 1915, and the third time as commander of the Australian squadron in the first half of the Second World War. Uh, due to this mobility of men and material between the different parts of the empire, uh, the Commonwealth Navy very much benefited from the knowledge of those officers and men. And to a certain extent, it was their experience and their abilities that made the Royal Australian Navy uh, so successful in the early stages of the First World War. Thanks, Tim. Richard Dunley, in 1884, the first flag officer to command the Australian station arrived. He was the larger-than-life Rear Admiral Sir George Tryon. Can you tell us something of him and talk about his legacy to Australia? Yeah, so Tryon, I think it's fair to say, is, or was something of a force of nature. Um, he entered the Royal Navy at what was then the comparatively old age of 16, um, and he entered without many of the, the patronage connections which were common and generally considered essential if he wanted to make a, a really successful naval career. Um, but through sort of intellect, force of character and some pretty good luck at times, um, he also he managed to, to rapidly rise uh, through the ranks. Um, he was a, a very large man and he was a man with a very large personality. Um, there's a number of different accounts about how whenever he walked into the room, he became the centre of attention and kind of the dominating figure. Um, and he was also a, a driver of reform. Um, within uh, the, the, the Victorian Royal Navy. And he's a, a sort of a key figure in this sort of later Victorian Royal Navy renaissance, I guess you could say. 
um, and he supported many of the other younger reformers um, and sort of helped develop their careers. Um, most notably, of course, um, Admiral Sir John Fisher, who goes on to become First Sea Lord um, and a, a sort of leading reformer uh, known as Radical Jack. Um, so immediately before Tryon's appointment to the Australia station, he had been secretary to the Board of Admiralty. Um, in fact, he was the last uh, uniformed uh, sort of person officer to to hold that position. And so when he comes out to Australia, he brings with him quite a lot of the authority of the Board of Admiralty. Uh, he'd been interacting with these sort of men on a day-to-day -day basis. He knew what was going on. Um, and he sets up his, his new residence at Admiralty House, what is now uh, the Governor General's residence in Sydney. Um, and he immediately starts to connect with a lot of Australia's elite society. Um, he does quite a lot of entertaining. As I say, he's this kind of real big dominant sort of figure. Um, he comes straight out of London. Um, and so he connects with, with Australian elite society very well. Um, almost immediately he arrives in 1885. There's a, another war scare with Russia. Um, and this brings naval matters very much to the, the attention of, of sort of the Australian population. Um, and there's a, a widespread belief that's developed that the ships of the Australia station were, were insufficient. Um, and, and Tryon uses this to try and sort of lead the debate in Australia. Um, and he even then proposes the development of a, a seagoing colonial fleet made up of Royal Navy vessels um, and, but very much supported by the, the colonies. So it, it's not purely a subsidy, it's very much becoming a, a colonial naval force. Um, and he also tried very hard to unite the, the disparate colonial navies and provide some kind of leadership for them. Um, his efforts were in part very successful, certainly in terms of the raising of the profile of these issues. They became very much at the, the centre of Australian politics. Um, but neither the Admiralty in London nor the colonial premiers fully embraced his solutions. Um, and for this reason, he wasn't invited to the 1887 Colonial Conference. Um, and as far as we can tell, he got in a bit of a sulk about this. Um, and he ends up asking the Admiralty for, for a transfer as a result. Um, he goes on to have a, a sort of an illustrious career, um, even beyond what he'd had at that point, being appointed to the the sort of the premier um, command of the Royal Navy, the CNC of the Mediterranean fleet. Um, and whilst exercising off the coast of, of Monde, Syria, uh, in 1893, he infamously gave uh, a, an incorrect signal um, and his flagship HMS Victoria was rammed and sunk by HMS Camperdown. Um, Tryon goes down with the ship uh, and it's an event which arguably has quite a profound impact on the Royal Navy. Um, depriving it of arguably its most energetic leader at a time when it was really looking for, for reform um, and also making it in many ways a more cautious organisation and less willing to adopt some of the, the reforms that, that Tryon was proposing. So a really interesting chap. Indeed, another dramatic story. And another dramatic story, Hone Cuff. With the approach of Federation, the relationship with the Royal Naval Squadron would change. Can you explain the transition and the work of one of the squadron's commanders, Vice Admiral Sir Arthur Fanshawe. To understand this transition, we must briefly look to their auxiliary squadron. 
So as Richard touched on, the 1870s and 1880s saw a great deal of discussion and attempts by the Admiralty to kind of elicit greater commitments by the colonies for the provision and upkeep of the squadron that defended Australia. The Auxiliary Squadron was one such attempt. In 1887, the Australasian Defence Act was passed, which provided for an auxiliary squadron to supplement the work of the existing Australian Station Squadron. The ships of the Australian Auxiliary Squadron, uh, five third-class cruisers and two torpedo gunboats, were to be paid for and owned by the British, but would not operate outside the Australia Station without consent from the colonial governments. In return for this additional naval protection, the colonial governments paid 5% of the initial construction costs and an annual maintenance subsidy of £91,000. The Act was to last for 10 years. By the time the Australasian Defence Act was due to expire, Australia was preparing to federate. There was now a real impetus for more to be done in terms of Australia having its own navy with the power to make laws for the defence of the Commonwealth of Australia, chief among the responsibilities of the new federal government. The foremost commentator on Australian naval affairs at the time was, of course, uh, Captain William Rook Quesrell. Acutely aware of Australia's vulnerability as an island nation, Creswell championed the creation of an Australian Navy that was owned, operated and maintained by Australia. Creswell's views and others like him, uh, like them, sparked some concern that Australia would abandon its links to the empire. These concerns were ultimately very much ill-founded. This brings us to Vice Admiral Arthur Fanshawe. Fanshawe was Commander-in-Chief of the Australia Station 1902-05, and he dismissed the idea of rushing to establish a small and ineffectual Australian Navy in favour of the Royal Navy, stressing that Australia's security rested in a large part upon the continued connection and cooperation with Empire. Australian naval strategists and politicians, Defence Minister James Drake and Prime Minister Barton in particular, heeded Fanshawe's warnings as they came to appreciate, one, the continuing importance of the imperial link, and two, that the new federal government was very much grappling with both the cost and minutiae of creating a federal administration. As a result, a more transitionary approach to Australian naval matters was adopted. As Commander-in-Chief of the Australia Station, Fanshawe was involved in negotiating the Naval Agreement Act of 1903 which provided for British-Australian naval collaboration as the Commonwealth Naval Forces evolved to eventually become the Royal Australian Navy. The 1903 Act saw the Federal Government of Australia agree to contribute to the maintenance of the RN for a further 10 years. Australia was to pay an annual subsidy of £200,000. The Admiralty would station a squadron in Australian waters, but control would rest solely with the Admiralty. As a concession to calls for greater Australian autonomy and skills building, three ships would be primarily manned by Australians and the RN would offer eight naval cadet ships each year to allow Australians to be trained up as officers. The coming decade provided the time in which Australia could gradually progress towards a singular Australian Navy for the defence of the newly federated nation. Thanks, Hone. We now seem to be talking about the creation of an Australian Navy Tim Dobler, can you pick up that theme and further explain how the Commonwealth Naval Forces were created and then went on to become the Royal Australian Navy? 
Yes. So the Commonwealth Naval Forces were formed of the colonial navies of South Australia, Victoria and Queensland with the Australian Federation in 1901. But initially, just little attention was paid to them. And they continued to be led by their former naval commandants as no overall command structure was structure was introduced. Only in 1904, after the Commonwealth Defense Act was signed, the position of uh, Director of Naval Forces was introduced. In the meantime, the Commonwealth Naval Forces consisted only of a few hundred men, permanent personnel, and just had the outdated and outworn vessels of the former colonial navies at hand. The Commonwealth government agreed to extend the naval agreement uh, with Great Britain um, on the Colonial Conference of 1902. Australia and New Zealand agreed to subsidize the upkeep of the Royal Navy's Australia station and uh, abolition of the inadequate uh, auxiliary squadron. This squadron was supposed to stay in Australian, Australian waters and needed the Commonwealth government to agree if the Admiralty needed its ships elsewhere in the Empire. Later, when the agreement was discussed in the Parliament, it was heavily criticized by Australian politicians and was marked as unpatriotic. But at this point, many believed that Australia did not have the financial capacity to build or sustain a navy, nor did it possess the respective knowledge. So the outcome of the agreement remained the status quo for the next few years until the famous dreadnought scares in 1909. To counter German naval aspirations, the British government received fundings by several colonies, including Australia and New Zealand, for additional battleships. This funding originated in the 1909 Imperial Conference on the Defense of the Empire, during which uh, the during which Admiral John Fisher, as first sea lord, introduced the fleet unit concept. According to the concept, Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the China Station should be equipped with a fleet unit of one battlecruiser, three light cruisers and several destroyers and submarines. But the only fleet unit ever materialized was the Australian unit with HMS Australia, HMS Melbourne, HMS Sydney, HMS Encounter as the nucleus of the Royal Australian Navy, which was founded by King George V in 1911. The fleet unit itself entered uh, its main base in Sydney in early October 1913 for the first time. We're approaching the end of the podcast, but also the end of Britain's Australia Station. Richard Dunley, the last commander of the Royal Navy Squadron on the Australia Station, was arguably one of its most influential. He was Vice Admiral Sir George King Hall. Can you tell us something of him and his contributions to Australia? Yeah, Peter. So King Hall um, comes from a very strong or came from a very strong naval family. His father was an admiral, um, as was his younger brother. Um, At one stage, they were the two British admirals in the Southern Hemisphere, so the Australia Station and the the CNC and the Cape Station. Um, So it's a very strong sort of um, uh, naval family. Um, and obviously, he had a, a, a very good career. Um, he spent some time as, as Sir John Fisher's chief of staff in the Mediterranean. But by the end of the first decade of the 20th century, he was somewhat out of favour with the Admiralty, partly because um, of his 
sort of difficult relationship with with Fisher. Um, and it looked like he was going to be stuck on on half pay until retirement. Um, and then in November 1910, pretty much out of the blue, he gets called to the Admiralty and he has no idea what's going on. And then uh, Reginald McKenna, the first Lord of the Admiralty, um, offers him the position of uh, Commander-in-Chief of the Australia Station for two years until the newly built ships of the Australian Navy, which we've just heard about from, from Tim, would be ready. Now, King Hall was a bit of an unusual selection in many ways, um, and there were a number of eyebrows raised at the time. Um, he was very much of a sort of a devout, godly type of man, um, and he was a teetotaler. Um, he was also very short of money, um, something that everyone was very much aware of. Um, and so it was sort of seen as, as being an odd selection because he wouldn't be able to do lots of the entertaining and the, um, the sort of... Uh, the soft skills side of, of, of the role. Um, and indeed, the, um, the wife of the, the previous uh, commander-in-chief made some, some distinctly derogatory comments to various people before he turned up. Um, but as it turned out, he, he became uh, sort of a far better commander-in-chief than was expected. Um, and this was partly because of the nature of the role. Um, a lot of it was was as much political as it was naval. Um, it was smoothing over any of the sort of the ruffles and the feathers regarding the the naval agreements between Britain and Australia, providing advice to the Australian government, um, and ultimately it was about helping knit the two navies together. Um, as he noted in his diary at the time, my chief aim is to weld the RN and the RAN together, and to get the Australians to see then unless it is one service, it will be of little use. That was how he saw his mission, um, and that was very much what he, what he sort of set out to do. And he proved to be a huge hit. Um, he came across as much more down-to-earth and kind of approachable than a lot of the, the officers that the Royal Navy had sent out as, as C&C. Um, and he was very much happy to provide honest advice to the Australians, even at times when that didn't necessarily quite align with what um, his bosses back in the Admiralty perhaps wanted him to say. Um, but overall, uh, King Hall proved to be a, a, a great success um, and was very well respected, um, particularly in Australia, um, and became quite close um, with a number of sort of Australian politicians and notably um, with, with Cresswell. Thank you. And to conclude that story, the, the Royal Australian Navy Fleet Unit arrives in 1913. So, Richard, how did the British squadron's presence officially come to an end? So, HMAS Australia, the flagship of, of the, the new um, Royal Australian Navy, commissions in Portsmouth on the, the 22nd of June 1913, and Rear Admiral Patey hoists his flag, becoming the first flag officer commanding Australian fleet. Um, now, the fleet unit itself enters Sydney Harbour amid huge celebrations on the 4th of October. Um, and there's a period of time when you've got both ships of the old Australia squadron and ships of, of the new uh, Royal Australian Navy uh, together in Sydney Harbour. Um, on the 13th of October, King Hall leaves Sydney um, in HMA, HMS uh, Cambrian. Um, and he sends the signal to the, the new battlecruiser, HMAS Australia, Godspeed. Um, and as he notes in his diary as he's leaving, um, he writes, much cheering and bands playing as we went out. 
I could not but be affected at the thoughts that the reign of the RN had come to an end as I took my last look at the fair city of Sydney. Well, let's reflect on that long reign. So to conclude, I'd like to ask our panel to briefly offer their thoughts on the legacy of the Royal Navy's presence on the Australia Station. So first of all, Honey Cuff. I think that the greatest and most enduring legacy has to be Australia's naval inheritance. The Royal Navy was the primary means by which Britain lay claim to the continent of Australia. Witnessing this, Australia's early strategists came to really appreciate the nation's vulnerability as an island nation and the overriding and that the overriding security concern was the defence of territorial waters and the sea lines of communication that emanated from the Australian continent. I see it as being an inheritance that continues to inform maritime doctrine and fleet composition today. Thanks, Hone. Tim? Well, it seems that with every member of a colonial community who joined the Royal Navy, the identification of colonials with the local station grew. I would say that men like Rear Admiral Dumarek, Rear Admiral Dalish, Vice Admiral Grace and others were role models to many Australians. Uh, these men joined the Royal Navy as boys and returned as men to command the fleet of the Royal Australian Navy. Their returns to Australia were intensely covered by colonial media, which praised them as Australians, almost like lost sons who finally returned home. And they were celebrated for their service, which is the most important point. Thank you, Tim. And finally, Richard. I think I broadly agree with, with what both um, Hone and, and Tim have, have outlined. And I think it's it's worth highlighting, as you did at the beginning of this podcast, the vast scale of the Australia station. It is a huge proportion of, of the surface of the globe. And the ships and the, the men of the Australia station exerted sort of British influence, broadly speaking, um, across that uh, vast area for a very long period of time. Um, and that has shaped many of the um, the sort of the identity of the the different nations of the region. And here we're, we're talking about Australia, obviously, but we're also talking about New Zealand and about lots of the Pacific Islands. Um, so this has been uh, a sort of a... Um, an element of the Royal Navy's influence, which perhaps is is not necessarily visible because there aren't sort of big battles and, and exciting, um, there are certainly exciting stories of daring do, but but not um, uh, the things that, that normally interest historians. But the way in which it's shaped the the history of places um, from from Australia to, to Fiji and out into to the rest of the Pacific um, is is something that that still is is playing out today. Mm. Well, thank you to our three experts, Hone Kuff, Tim Durbler, Richard Dunley, who've told us an epic story uh, over both time and space. This podcast has been produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales, Canberra. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy's Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you liked this episode please rate it on your podcast app so other people can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. This is the final episode of Season 6. We look forward to presenting Season 7 in the second half of 2022. Goodbye for now.